1: You're listening to the Rock and Roll Heaven podcast with LD and TJ. Can you dig that, baby?
2: (laughs) Hey, guys. Welcome to Rock and Roll Heaven, the podcast where we talk about the lives, careers, and deaths of famous musicians. I am your host, LD. Along with me for the ride, as always, is TJ. Oh, hey. Okay. So, not to bring everybody down, like, right at the top. But we're recording this on Sunday, December 8th, and today is the anniversary of the death of John Lennon, uh, Dimebag Daryl from Pantera, and we just woke up to the news this morning that Juice World has died at the age of 21, and it looks like preliminary reports are coming in that he actually died of a seizure at the Chicago airport, so... So sad. He's so young. He's so young. 21. Jeez. Yeah. Yeah, it's really sad. So, uh, we will have an episode on Dimebag Daryl, and of course, we'll have one on Juice World. So, and our our thoughts and our prayers are with his family and loved ones today. That's it was a really sad way of waking up, and and really interesting. Uh, I started getting into the beauty world over the last couple of months, and I guess I think I talked about like standing in line mm-hmm. to get the conspiracy palette. So, I just started following all these influencers on Twitter and. A lot of them were posting about Juice World and how much they loved him and how much they cared about him. So, you know, it's, it's really sad, especially 21. I'm looking back and I'm like, that was 19 years ago for me. And so much has happened since I was 21. And so it's just, it's way too young to be taken. And it's so sad. Yeah, it's just, that's just sad. It really is. But uh, we're actually talking about something that we're, I just mentioned before, our, our subject today is John Lennon. And we're recording this on the day of his assassination. Yeah. it will it will this episode will come out on Wednesday of course, you know. Hi future everybody. But uh as of today we're recording this we're actually recording it on the day. So there've been a lot of stuff on Twitter and uh Facebook about what's his his impact that he's had so far. So I thought it would be appropriate to do an episode on Mr. John Lennon. And it's actually going to be a two-parter. And I want to say this up top. This episode is other than in a few spots, going to be about John Lennon. And I have to say that because yes, he was with the Beatles. But if we talk about everything that the Beatles did, this would be just a podcast on the Beatles.
0: Which there are those out there, so if you want that, go find that.
2: <laughs> yeah. There I in my doing my research I found like fifteen or sixteen different podcasts just related to the Beatles. So if you really want an in-depth, deep dive into every aspect, there there are those resources. But we decided to split this off into two parts. So hopefully it'll be meaty enough for you. But unfortunately, we just don't have the time and the resources to just devote the entire month of December to John Lennon.
0: No. <laughs> we did that already. We don't want to do that again. <laughs>
2: In the month of Mercury. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> it's the greatest month ever. For you. You didn't have to do anything. Oh, that's true. That was nice. <laughs> All right. So right at the top, I know we started putting our stuff in the show notes, but I would like to give a couple little shout outs. Uh, my main sources for this is a book called John, which is by Cynthia Lennon. And she was married to John for 10 years, so, yeah. uh, I feel like she knows a little bit about him. Just a little. Just a little. Uh, The Lives of John Lennon by Albert Goldman, which is a great book. Um, And a huge thank you to Simon Whistler of the YouTube channel. Uh, He calls them biographs. But I I think that's just a fancy, fancy way of saying biographies. So, All right, then. And then there was a great article by Rolling Stone Magazine and uh, the author, Mikhail Gilmore. And so those were like my main sources for th- this part. And I'll go ahead and give you guys a spoiler alert. This will last from 1940 to 1970. So it's basically his birth to when to the Beatles actually broke up. And so, like I said, there will be spots where we do highlight what's happening with the Beatles, but this is mainly about John Lennon and his parents. Fair enough. All right. So let's start rolling. <laughs> So born John Winston Ono Lennon, which is, sorry, uh, John Winston Ono Lennon, MBE. And it's, if you're wondering what MBE is, is the most excellent order of the British Empire. And it's a British order of chivalry, rewarding contributions to the arts, science, and work with charitable and welfare organizations and a public service organization. Outside of the civil service. And the middle name Winston is actually in reference to Winston Churchill. I tried to figure out if he was actually Sir John Lennon, but I don't think he is. Because Paul McCartney actually is Sir Paul McCartney.
0: Right. But John Lennon is
2: MBE, so there you go. Yeah. So I'm not, I'm not sure if that counts as being knighted, but anyway, I just thought that was kind of cool. Okay. John was born at Liverpool Eternity Hospital to his father Alfred and his mother Julia. Uh, She had been in labor for 13 hours, which that's, ow. Yeah. Not the worst, but, yeah. I forget how, like, one of, I can't remember if it was me or my brother. My mom was in labor for, like, 27 hours. Oh, that's just (laughs) evil. (laughs) I'm pretty sure it was my brother because he cannot be on time to save his life. I know he's listening now. Hi, TJ. Other TJ.
0: (laughs) I was going to say, hi. (laughs) Hi.
2: Yes. And for those who don't know, my brother's name is Travis Jenkins. He is uh, also a TJ. So what made his birth so incredible is that you have to remember, at this point, he was born on October the 9th, 1940. London was actually in the heat of World War Two and air raid sirens were going off. And his aunt Mimi said the night of it was the night of the landmine raids. But he was born a healthy baby boy at seven and a half pounds. And I should say, on the day of his birth, his father was not present. Why for? He was a seaman. Oh, makes sense. Mm, well. This is going to be a in through w- line to the story. If they're in war, though. Yeah, but this is going to be kind of indicative of his parental upbringing. Okay, then. When Julia gave birth to John, she was twenty-seven, but she behaved like a kid. She was frolicsome, funny, and full of mischief, and she was a notorious flirt. According to the book *The Lives of John Lennon*, she was apparently a beautiful woman with like perfectly arched eyebrows, high cheekbones, like just basically like the perfect woman. And she re- she received a lot of marriage offers, but no one could come between her and her favorite playmate, a young ship steward, Freddie or Alfred Lennon. People said that. Uh, Julia and Freddie were Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers but you like classic movies so you understand that yeah kind of a a good match really attractive good chemistry that kind of stuff
0: Yeah, the last Fred Astaire movie I watched kind of creeped me out so what was it? Funny Face with uh, Audrey Audrey Hepburn Hepburn. yeah and he was far too old for her in that movie (laughs) so it kind of creeped me out
2: fair enough (laughs) But also, like, can't we use that phrase, oh, it was a different time?
0: Yeah, but it still just creeped me out. So, you know.
2: <laughs> um, so, Julia was one of five Stanley sisters. There was Mimi, Betty, Annie, or Anne, Julia, and Harriet, all born in the shadow of Liverpool's Angelican Cathedral. Julia Stanley was red-haired, exuberant, musical, and headstrong, and she was only 14 when she started seeing a hotel bellboy, which was Alfred. So at the time, he was a hotel bellboy when they met. And that was much to her parents' chagrin. So a little bit about his dad, Alfred Freddie Lennon, often called Alf by his family, was always joking that he never held a job for very long, preferring to visit Liverpool's many vaudevillian theaters and cinemas where he knew the Usherettes by name. So he was kind of saucy. Fair enough. He was a saucy little man. At the Trocadero Club, a coveted cinema on Camden Road in in Liverpool, he first saw an auburn-haired girl with a brilliant smile and high cheekbones, Julia Stanley, and he saw her again in Shifton Park, where he had gone with a friend to meet some girls. Lennon, who dressed in a bowler hat with a cigarette holder in hand, saw this little waif sitting on a wrought iron bench. Julia, who I should mention was 14 years old at this point.
0: You should mention that. <laughs> Already. I know
2: I feel like I need to say it again. All right. <laughs> Said that his hat looks silly to which, I mean, at this point he's 15. So. Okay. So not not like a huge difference. But the way they make him sound, it sounds like he's like 30. <laughs> yeah. Sounds like he's a dog. <laughs> yeah. No, but he's not. He's two, he's 15 year old. Alf replied that she looked lovely and sat down next to her. She asked him to take off the hat. He probably threw it straight into the lake. There you go. That's love. So despite only standing five foot two inches in heels, she often caught the gaze of men in the streets. Being attractive and full-figured, she was always well-dressed and even went to bed with makeup on so she could look beautiful when she woke up. So so mildly vain. I'm only seeing problematic things because I feel like at 14, you shouldn't be wearing a ton of makeup. And who's going to see you right when you wake up?
0: Yeah, but again, this is... Several years ago where actually she would be of that age where she would be starting to date and she would be, you know, close to
2: a marriageable age. Yeah, fair enough. It was a different
0: time. It was a different time.
2: They spent their days together walking around Liverpool and talking of what they would do in the future, opening up a shop, a pub, a cafe, or a club. On December 3rd, 1938, 11 years after they first met, she married Alf Lennon. After she had proposed to him, bold, you go girl, they were married at the bolton street Registers office although none of their family was present and she had not informed them of the wedding she wrote cinema usherette as her occupation on the marriage certificate even though she had never been one they spent their honeymoon eating at reese's restaurant in clayton square which is where their son would celebrate his marriage to cynthia powell years later and they went to the movies She basically walked into Newcastle Road, which is where she lived, just like waving the marriage license in her family's face and saying, there, I married him. It was an act of defiance against her father who threatened to disown her if she ever lived with a lover. On their wedding night, she stayed at her parents' house and Lennon went back to his boarding house. And on the next day, he went to sea for three months on a ship bound for West Indies. Well, all right then. So marriage... Movie, Ocean. The reason why I spent a little bit more time on John Lennon's parents is that you can actually see how what his parents went through defines him as an adult later on. There were articles where they referred to John Lennon's mother as his muse. And so I, I thought it was really important to talk about their relationships because he wasn't, his father wasn't present at the birth of John And he also just married her and then immediately left. So he's not present for, like, major events. Right. And that really did, I feel like when I was doing my reading, it seemed like it really affected John. So that's why I have so much about the parents. Okay. The Stanley family completely ignored her husband at first, believing him to be of no use to anyone and certainly not to our Julia. Her father demanded that Lennon present something concrete to show that he could financially support his daughter. But Lennon signed on as a merchant navy steward on a ship bound for the Mediterranean. He returned after a few months after sea and was moved into the Stanley home. He auditioned for local theater managers as an entertainer, but he didn't have any kind of real success at it. And then he didn't have that it factor. He didn't. He didn't have that pizzazz. But Julia found out that she was pregnant. And uh, that was in January of 1940. But as the war had started, her husband continued to serve as a merchant seaman during World War II, sending money home regularly. But the payment stopped after Alf deserted in 1943. Ouch. Yeah. Well, because they don't pay deserters. No, nah, no. You're lucky to keep your head. And that, I've always wondered this, just a sidebar, was during the heat of war, how did they tell if you're either a deserter or not dead? I mean... I don't know, because it seems so chaotic to me how they could keep like how they would know that someone had deserted, not like been shot in a building. Well, probably if they showed up alive somewhere.
0: But either way, if you're dead, they're not going to pay you either.
2: No, but you get a pension. Your well, your yeah, that's your, true. your wife gets a pension. Like your family has an in, like basically an insurance policy on you. I don't know.
0: I mean, they have people that have to go through the battle fronts and like look for dog tags and stuff like that.
2: Yeah, I guess so. like like if you bomb out a total building like how do you i don't know i I don't know i don't know if you guys know please let us know if there's someone out there that's like a war expert please let me know because i would love to know some of the stuff in like the chaos of war how do people keep tabs on other people uh so we're gonna kind of flash forward to 1945 and john started attending the dovedale primary school in liverpool starting that september so this is the very, like, the, the tail end of World War Two. Huh. Here you go, TJ. Fun fact. In 1946, John's father attempted to take him to New Zealand, but was intercepted by John's mother and returned to his Aunt Mimi and his Uncle George, where he remained with his aunt and his uncle, but his mother did visit him often. So his dad, it sounds like, almost tried to kidnap him. Possible. You don't know. I don't know. Tried to take him to New Zealand. There's... There's, like, nothing in 1945 in New Zealand except for sheep. Like, you don't even have, like... Maybe you wanted to take him on a vacation. Yeah, but you don't even have, like, Taika Waititi or the Shire or Peter Jackson. It's just sheep. <laughs> you can't see it, but I rolled my eyes at her. <laughs> we really want to go to New Zealand. Like, me and Will really want to go to New Zealand. I just don't know if I that could checks. be... <laughs> I don't know if I could be on a plane for 22 hours.
0: Uh we're going to do it when we go to Bali for our honeymoon. Now I'm good.
2: There I would
0: We're going to take a quick stop in Hong Kong probably
2: to like get
0: off a plane, but you know. I,
2: I would rather be stuck in a locked room with John Landis and Phil Collins. Okay. <laughs> that seems extreme for that length of time. <laughs> Well, if it's Battle Royale, only one of us is getting out. And I have a feeling I know who it is. You can't see it, but I'm pointing to myself. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Lennon's childhood was unsettled with an absent father and a mother who simply couldn't handle motherhood. After complaints to Liverpool's social services by her eldest sister Mimi, uh, who was now at this point in a Smith, so she was married, she handed over the care of her son to her sister She later had one daughter after an affair with a Welsh soldier, but the baby was given up for adoption after pressure from her family. She then had two daughters, Julia and Jackie, with John Bobby Dykins. I don't think that's how I'm saying his name. I'm just going to commit to it. She never divorced her husband, preferring to live as the common law wife of Dykins for the rest of her life. At the age of four, Lennon didn't even live with his mother, instead living with his childless uncle George and Aunt Mimi. The two were stern, but a loving influence on Lennon throughout his childhood. And though Mimi did what she could to discourage Lennon's love of music, it was her who actually once famously told him, The guitar is all very well, John, but you'll never make a living out of it. (laughs) (laughs) Obviously, she wasn't psychic. Lennon's mother was actually more supportive of his musical interest. In fact, it was Julia who bought a guitar for him. Though Lennon didn't live with his mother, he remained close to her, regularly visiting her in the house where the two would listen to Elvis records and pluck chords on the banjo, ukulele, and guitar. And the thing about Mimi is, like, she was so against the whole musical thing, she wouldn't allow a record player in the house. Jeez. I know. Julia was also a frequent visitor at her sister's house where she spent mornings drinking tea with Mimi and chatting to her son. Julia visited Mimi's house nearly every day where they would chat over teas and cakes in the morning in the morning room, or standing in the garden when it was warm. That is, like, the most British thing you could do. Like, let's take our tea outside. Take our tea to the garden. Darling, let's take our our tea to the garden. Yeah. Darling, you don't like my impressions? I'm just out. Okay. (laughs) Hang hang on. Hello, governor, let's go to the tea room and have some tea.
0: No. No? No. (laughs) Don't ever do that again.
2: On the evening of July 15th, 1958, Nigel Wally went to visit Lennon and found Julia and Mimi talking by the front gate. Lennon was not there and he was at, he was actually at the Bloomfield Roadhouse. I guess I'm supposed to know what that is. Uh, Whaley accompanied Julia to the bus stop further north along Menlove Avenue and apparently she was like joking all the way. She was having a great time at 930 Wally left her to walk up to Vale Road, where she crossed Menlove Avenue to the Central Reserve Station between the two traffic lines, which is lined with hedges covering a disused tram track. Moments later, Whaley heard a loud thud and turned to see her body flying through the air, which landed about 100 feet from where she had been hit. He ran back to get Mimi, and they waited for the ambulance, with Mimi crying hysterically, This is so sad. Julia was struck and killed by a standard Vanguard car driven by an off-duty constable, PC Eric Clegg, who was a learner driver. Clegg was acquitted of all charges and given a short suspension from duty. When Mimi heard the verdict, she was so incensed that she shouted, Murderer! at Clegg. Clegg later left the police force and became a postman. She's the one that walked on the track. It, no, he, he blasted through and hit her. She was walking, so she's a pedestrian, and he hit her with his car.
0: Oh, okay.
2: Yeah. And now I did find some reports saying that he was drunk at the time, and then I just, I couldn't find enough to corroborate that information, so that's just speculation on a couple different articles that I read. Lennon could not bring himself to look at his mother's corpse when he was taken to the Sheffin General Hospital and was so distraught that he put his head on Mimi's lap throughout the funeral service. Lennon refused to walk to Whaley for months after and Whaley felt that Lennon somehow held him responsible and I I can see why he was the one that walked her originally and he left her so in John's mind it's like his fault that his mom died so Julia was buried in the Allerton Cemetery in Liverpool and I wanted to put this in because I thought it was really interesting her gravesite was unmarked for some time but it was later identified as C.E. 38805, and that's the Church of England. Baird said that the Stanley family hoped to finally put a headstone on her mother's grave, which she hoped would be a private affair for the family and not for the public. The headstone was sub- subsequently placed on Julia's grave, replacing a wooden cross with the words Mummy, John, Victoria, Julie, Jackie inscribed. Okay. So, John has lost his mother and, in effect, kind of lost his father. And his mother was the driving force behind his music so she would be the one that would like sneak him Elvis records or or buy instruments for him or teach him how to do these things so really we kind of have Julia to thank for John Lennon right at the time that Julie had died Lennon was already having trouble in school he was so smart no doubt but his wit and his attitude got him into trouble with his teachers he created comics of teachers and of fellow students in a work that he entitled the daily howl and detention sheets from Quarry Bank High School showed Lennon once received three detentions in one day, with offenses ranging from fighting in class to sabotage to just no interest whatsoever. While Lennon was goofing up in school, he was also paying close attention to his music. He was playing in a band called The Quarrymen, which was it was one of the band's gigs that would ultimately lead to the formation of the Beatles. On July 6, 1957, The Quarrymen played the Walton Village Fete. And one of John Lennon's bandmates decided that Lennon should be introduced to a friend of his. And can you guess who that friend was? Paul McCartney? Oh, come on. I was hoping that you would say you didn't know. But yes. I took a wild (laughs) guess that it was probably one of the Beatles. (laughs) It's Sir Paul McCartney. But he wasn't a Sir then. He was not a Sir then. He was like 16. No, wait. 57? 17. But we haven't gotten to Paul McCartney yet because he's still alive. Well, yeah. So, yeah, it was it was Paul McCartney. And that day, McCartney, who is two years younger than John, taught Lennon how to tune a guitar. So I guess at this point he didn't even know how to tune his guitar and impressed him with a rendition of the song 20 Flight Rock. The atmosphere of that day stuck with Paul. And even if he even if the exact year didn't at Walton Village. So this is a quote from Paul at Walton Village Fete. I met him. I was a fat schoolboy, and he leaned an arm on my shoulder, and I realized he was drunk. We were 12 then, but in spite of this, his sideboards, which are sideburns, we went on to become teenage pals. So he did have the timeline wrong, but basically John was drunk and still had sideburns. So it was only two weeks before Paul was asked to join the Quarrymen, and he agreed. Shortly thereafter, Paul introduced John and the other band members to his friend, someone you might also be familiar with, George Harrison. It was 1958, and three of the four Beatles had found each other. The Beatles began at a 58-night spot at the, oh God, Kaiser Keller Hamburg. Forgive me if I don't know German. By January 1959, Lennon's Quarryman Bank friends had left the group, and he began his studies at the Liverpool College of the Arts. The three guitarists, billing themselves at least three times as Johnny and the Moondogs, which, by the way, I'm so glad they changed their name. Uh, Yes. Ditto. Johnny and the Moondogs. That's kind of cool, though.
0: <laughs> I kind of like it. I don't think they would have been as big.
2: Yeah. It, the Johnny and the Moondogs mania doesn't sound exactly great as, as no. good as Beatlemania. Yeah, no. Yeah. <laughs> so Johnny and the Moondogs were playing rock and roll wherever they could find a drummer. So you see they're missing a drummer. Lennon's art school friend, Stuart Shulkuff, who had just sold one of his paintings and was persuaded to purchase a bass guitar, joined in January 1960. And it was he who suggested changing the name to The Beatles as a tribute to Buddy Holly and the Crickets. And I should say, at this point, they're spelling it B E A T A L S, like a drum beat. Ah ha 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 ha. Well, did you ever see That's that clever. thing you do? Yeah. You like the the Wonders? Yeah. Like, I wonder what happened to the The (laughs) o I love that movie so much. Anyway, uh, which was, you know, the the name changed as a tribute to Buddy Holly and the Crickets. They used this name until May when they became the Silver Beetles, which they actually changed it to B-E-E, before undertaking a brief tour of Scotland as the backing group for a pop singer and fellow Liverpoolian, Johnny Gentle. But after July, they had fashioned themselves as the Silver Beetles, and by the middle of August, they had shortened the name to just the Beetles. So they've got three of the members and the name. Now we're almost at the full Beetle unit. Band. Band. (laughs) (laughs) They are a band. (laughs) Okay. If you say so. Uh, Alan Williams, the Beatles' unofficial manager, arranged a residency for them in Hamburg, but lacking a full-time drummer, they auditioned and hired Pete Best in mid-August of 1960. The band was now five pieces, left four days later, contracted to a club owner, Bruno Koschminder, for what would be a -a three-and-a-half-month residency. In November 1961, during one of the group's frequent performances as the Cavern Club, they encountered Brian Epstein a local record store owner, and a music columnist. He later recalled, I immediately liked what I heard. They were fresh, they were honest, and they had what I thought was the sort of presence, a uh, star quality. Epstein courted the band over the next couple of months, and they later appointed them as their manager in 1962. Through early and mid-1962, Epstein sought to free the Beatles from the contractual obligations from Bert Kempfert Productions. So many words. He eventually negotiated a one-month early release for their contract in exchange for one last recording session in Hamburg. Tragedy greeted them on their return to Germany in April when a distraught Kirshner met them at the airport with the sad news of Sheffield's death the previous day from what was later determined to be a brain hemorrhage. So very sad. Epstein began negotiating with record labels for a recording contract in order to secure a UK recording contract. Epstein negotiated an early end to the band's contract with Polydor in exchange for more recordings backing Tony Sheridan. After a New Year's Day audition, Decca Records rejected the band with the comment, Guitar groups are on the way out, Mr. Epstein. However, three months later, producer George Martin signed the Beatles to EMI's Parlophone label. Martin's first recording session with the Beatles took place at the EMI Abbey Road Studios in London on the 6th of June, 1962. Road! Yeah. Martin immediately complained to Epstein about Best's poor drumming and suggested that they use a session drummer in his place. Already contemplating Best's dismissal, the Beatles replaced him in mid-August with... Let me guess. Ringo Starr? You are incorrect. Oh, okay. Well, No, I'm you... kidding. You're right. <laughs> 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 Who left... <laughs> Rory Storm and the Hurricanes, which is an awesome band name. Yes. Oh, that's cool. Rory Storm and the Hurricanes to join them. A September 4th session at EMI yielded a recording of Love Me Do featuring Star on the drums, but a dissatisfied Martin hired drummer Andy White for the band's third session a week later, which producing recordings of Love Me Do, Please Please Me and P.S. I Love You. So if you guys hear anything in the background, it is raining (laughs) hard, like super hard. And normally if the air conditioner comes on, we can fix that. But if you guys happen to hear like rhythmic sounds in the background, there's literally nothing we can do because rain. Yep. And if you live anywhere other than California, rain might be a normal thing for you guys, but it is not here. It's more of a rarity here. Yeah. It's the only... (laughs) California is the only state where I know that if it rains, people are like, I can't come to your party tonight. It's raining. Pretty much, yeah. (laughs) So jumping back into John, music couldn't be his only focus. And though he had failed his exams upon leaving high school, Lennon's aunt and former headmaster pulled strings and persuaded the Liverpool College of Arts to accept the rambunctious teen who did show incredible promise with the arts. Lennon started attending the Liverpool College of Arts in the fall of 1957, but he didn't fare much better at, at the art school than he had in traditional schools, although he did meet his first wife, Cynthia Powell. Lennon never really had the right equipment for his, class and his classes and was always borrowing Powell's tools. It was also up to Powell to help Lennon on his exams, and though he ultimately failed them, she tried. <laughs> For all the help that she gave him, Lennon was not a kind and loving boyfriend to Powell. In fact, he could be downright abusive, even acknowledging as much later by saying, I was in sort of a blind rage for two years. I was either drunk or fighting, and it had been the same with the other girlfriends I had, but there was something wrong with me. And I think I'm in the editorialize just a hair here, which for all that I've heard, Early John Lennon was kind of a jerk. Well, he admits as much. Yeah, but there are even lists out there that are like, lists of people who were geniuses but kind of jerks. And he's always on those lists. So, but you'll find out in part two that I think one of his downfalls said with a question mark was that in later on in life he actually became much more endearing to his fans. And I think that might have been one of his, the, the things that contributed to his death. The relationship lasted, though, and in 1962, Powell discovered that she was pregnant with Lennon's child. In keeping with the expectations of the time, the two were married in a simple civil ceremony in Liverpool. Lennon's music career had already taken priority over everything else, and they skipped a honeymoon so he could play a gig that night, which was actually the night of their wedding. So he played a gig the night of their wedding. Hey, you got to do what you got to do. I know, but I can feel like that's the one day where you shouldn't have to work. I, like, uh,
0: yeah, you got to pick I, up like, a gig
2: the day you marry Chip? Like, I do, I do. All right, uh, let me change into my jeans. If my career were on, like,
0: if it was important to my career trajectory in music, well, possibly.
2: Yeah, but at this point, it seems like he's already recording music.
0: Well, yeah, but hmm. they haven't quite, like... Made it huge yet, so it's still important.
2: Yeah. Cynthia gave birth to Julian Lynn in 1963, and with the Beatles' star on the rise in Liverpool, John didn't pay much attention to his son. And that's why I gave the backstory about his father. Right. In fact, his relationship with his son was no better than it was with his wife something Jillian publicly and angrily spoke about as a an adult. John was the only married member of the Beatles and the only one with a child and the group's manager tried to keep this information about Lennon under wraps as he was marketed to the group. Girls wanted their pop stars to be single and cute. Not married. Right. With a kid. Yeah. And that was like that was a huge thing back in those days was like if you were married, they try to get you to get a divorce. If you had a child, they would try to keep that child hidden. Like, marketing back then was so much different than it is now. Like, now people want to see the, their stars in relationships and in healthy not relationships. Not always. I mean, I would rather Jensen Ackles was a single man and was in love with me, but that's not going to happen. Yeah, true. Also, I think my husband would have something to say about that. Most likely, yeah. <laughs> the Beatles' rise to fame began at the Cavern Club, but it was interspersed with performances in Germany. Along with Lennon, McCartney, and Harrison, bandmates Stu Shuffield and Pierre Best made up the band's lineup for their infamous stays in Hamburg, Germany at the Kaiserkeller Club. The boys, no more than 22, and George was actually only 17 lived in horrid conditions, and survived on pills and alcohol during their stay. But the audience loved them, especially Lennon's onstage antics. One night that he was supposed to be on stage, he was actually fooling around with a woman. The only reason why the two broke up their little activity was because the club's bouncer dumped cold water on them. Instead of getting dressed and going on stage, Lennon grabbed his guitar and joined his bandmates, only wearing underwear and a toilet seat around his neck. Well, all right then. My question is where did he get the toilet seat? And why would he put that around his neck? Also, wasn't he completely soaking wet at that point then? Probably.
0: Well no, because he took the wet clothes off.
2: You think he was wearing clothes at this point? I don't know. I don't know how far into the act they were. But anyway, that was a funny anecdote. I'm sorry. I thought that oh, was. But wait, funny.
0: isn't he married at this point? Yeah. And yeah. only seventeen though,
2: that's No, he was twenty two. Oh, okay. I thought you
0: said seventeen. I was like, oh. No, I was
2: saying George was seventeen okay, yeah. George said, yeah, no. I mean, also, drinking in other countries is completely different than drinking in America. Because, um, you know, my stepson, Eli, lives in Germany, and he can drink at 16. Right. So here it's 21. So, like, we think it's awful that a 17-year-old is getting hammered. But, like, the fact is, there's a different standard and a different age in other countries.
0: Oh, no, I know that. I was actually commenting on the fact that he's married at 17 yeah but it wasn't him it was george so whatever
2: (laughs) (laughs) when the beatles returned to liverpool and resumed playing at the cavern club they caught the attention of a young record store owner in the area familiar with the group from their visit to a store brian epstein went to one of those performances and saw their potential we talked about brian a little bit and signed on as their manager. He got them a record contract and was by their side until his death in 1967. And please remember when I say this, it was a different time. Epstein was gay and homosexuality was still illegal in England during the 1960s. Over the years, rumor had persisted that Lennon and Epstein had an affair largely stemming from a vacation that they took together to Spain in 1963 mere weeks after his son was born. Lennon denied the rumor, saying, I was on holiday with Brian Epstein in Spain, and there were rumors that went around that he and I were having a love affair. Well, it was almost a love affair, but not quite. It was never consummated, but it was a pretty intense relationship. <laughs> yeah, it is crazy to look back and think, you know, th- there are still countries where you can be killed for being gay. Oh, yeah. And that is so, so scary. Yeah. By early 1964, the Beatles were hitting the airwaves in America. And then on February 7th, 1964, their plane touched down at the newly renamed Kennedy Airport in New York City with crowds of teenagers greeting them, hanging over railings, screaming and waving signs. We've seen footage of this. Right. This is the start of Beatlemania. And then, like... The footage of that is insane. Like girls are fainting, screaming, catching each other. I mean, it is crazy. I don't know if we have an artist that's doing that now. No. I think I, Probably well,
0: not. I mean well, possibly I think in some of the younger boy bands and whatnot, maybe, but I don't know.
2: I actually think maybe K pop with like BTS. Oh yeah, maybe. And then I think more recently for Americans it was One Direction. So but but in my, it, when I was growing up, we didn't have that kind of, like, scream-till-you-pass-out person.
0: Did you? I don't know. I mean, maybe, like, NSYNC and Backstreet Boys and all that, maybe.
2: I guess the New Kids on the it's, Block.
0: I think it's always, like, the boy bands. Yeah. They get that kind of crazy stuff.
2: Yeah. I guess there's always, like, one in a generation. Because I do kind of remember, like, people freaking out over the New Kids on the Block. And I love New Kids on the Block, but I don't know if I would... Line up in an airport to like maybe look at them. My sister had the bed sheets. <laughs> I had the really big button, you know. Yeah, like the, she had that too. I re- mega button. Yeah, <laughs> this is ridiculous. <laughs> While they made their way through the crowds to speak to the press, Lennon treated American media to a dose of his classic wit. When a reporter asked why people love the Beatles so much, Lennon replied, "If we knew, we'd form another group and be the managers." <laughs> so basically, saying they'd make money off that yeah two days later the lads from liverpool made their first appearance on the ed sullivan show as the studio audience screamed and 73 million americans watched from home 73 million americans that's like in 1964 that's like all of america (laughs) i was gonna say does america even have that many people in 1964 i don't do they how much of america was watching that
0: the entire country, That's The whole, the whole the country. Entri- everybody, every single TV set. Basically. But, whatever.
2: So, but basically, TJ and her math wizardry just figured out that it was kind of comparable. The viewership of the Ed Sullivan show with the Beatles was kind of comparable with the finale of MASH. As, as, as far as viewership goes, MASH did have a little bit more, but... If you think about it in that kind of context, that viewership is incredibly high. And you don't pull those numbers anymore because of streaming services, DVRs, so many different channels. And and so at the time, I think there was only three channels that you could pick up in 1964. So that's, that's still a staggering number. Yeah. So it's about two-fifths of the population. Oh. For both. That's a lot. That's that's a lot. I mean, you're not going to get that number today. There's nothing. Even the Super Bowl, I don't think, pulls that number anymore. <laughs> <laughs> on the Ed Sullivan Show, they performed five songs, and during the show, each Beatles' name appeared on the screen. Lennon's name had an addendum, though. It read, sorry, girls, he's married. And if you guys, if you haven't seen the movie That Thing You Do, Watch it. It's super underrated. Tom Hanks is a gem. I love Ethan Embry. There's just so much good stuff, but they do mirror that event in the film where it cuts to Jimmy, and it's like, sorry, girls, he's taken. So there are a lot of parallels between that thing you do and kind of the rise of the Beatles. So keeping Cynthia and Julian's existence wasn't quite possible for a man who was about to become one of the most recognizable people in the world. 1964 saw the release of both the movie and the album A Hard Day's Night, marking all four Beatles' foray into the film industry. Lennon would later appear in a satirical film called How I Won the War, not to be constrained by only two artistic mediums. Lennon also published a book entitled In His Own Right, which he later followed up with a volume entitled A Spaniard in the Works. As the 60s continue on, the Beatles stayed at the top of the pop culture world, and that high profile meant that Lennon's mouth could get him in the band in trouble very easily. In 1966, he famously told a reporter that the Beatles were more popular than Jesus. When the remark was published, it caused an uproar, and a so-called Beatles burnings were held in around the United States, in which teens and their parents burned their albums, photo, and other Beatles memorabilia. That actually happened in our generation, too, with the Dixie Chicks. Remember that? Yes, I do. <sighs> in 1967, the Beatles took rock and roll to new heights, releasing Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band, one of my favorites, a psychedelic concept album that featured a collage of historical figures and celebrities on its cover. Initially, Jesus was supposed to be among those pictured in the artwork, but after Lennon's 1966 remarks, he was removed from the array. All right, then. One of the songs on Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band, which was one of... This is a great song, but the the best is when William Chatner does it, which was Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds, has long been thought to be drug-related as in the major work cited the that the title created the acronym LSD however lennon said that his inspiration for the imagery came from one of his favorite works of literature alice in wonderland with the overall idea streaming from one of julian's childhood drawings of a school friend named lucy so debunked it's not about drugs it's about a picture okay Okay, in August 1967, leadership in and around the Beatles shifted more decidedly after their manager, Brian Epstein, was found dead in his London townhouse from an unintentional overdose of drugs. Epstein had been depressed for some time, but he remained utterly devoted to the band. and many members of the group's insiders felt that it was Epstein who kept the Beatles grounded and protected. I knew we were in trouble then, Lennon would later say. I didn't really have any misconceptions about our abilities to do anything other than to play music. I was scared. I thought, we've effing had it. McCartney, though, didn't see it that way. Five days after Epstein's death, Paul convinced the others to undertake a film and music festival. Fantasia? A music Fantasia. Magical mystery tour. The band spent the late summer into the early winter filming odd revelries, and recording music to accompany those scenes. And while it was a free-form collaborative project by all four Beatles, there was no mistaking in the end that the Magic Mystery Tour had primarily been McCartney's invention. The film debuted on the BBC the day after Christmas 1967, and the next day it was savaged by critics. Blatant rubbish wrote London's Daily Express. Lennon was reportedly somewhat pleased to see McCartney stumble for once, so you can kind of start seeing cracks. Okay. During this time period, Lennon had begun to move in an avant-garde artistic circles, primarily due to his new relationship with Yoko Ono, everybody's favorite Beatle. Okay. He met Ono at one of her gallery shows, and at the time their meeting was considered solely of her handing him a card that said nothing but breathe. So literally, she just walked up to him and handed him like a business card that just said breathe. That was their first experience together. That's weird. Uh, have you seen literally I know anything? She
0: is, I know she
2: is weird, but that's weird. That's, yes. Sorry if you love Yoko Ono. She's kind of strange. Look, I'm kind of strange too. I'm not Yoko Ono strange, but I am kind of strange. Lennon was actually still married to Cynthia, and he and Ono began spending time together and even recording an album called Two Versions that featured both of them standing fully nude on the cover. That's got to be scandalous back then. Yeah. Lennon and Cynthia did not officially divorce until 1968, though the relationship between Ono and Lennon had been well known. With Ono spending time in the recording studios as the Beatle works and even lent her voice on the White Album song Bungalow Bill. Have you ever heard Yoko Ono do her music? Yes, please don't play me a video. I'm not. (laughs) I'm not putting myself through that.
0: I can't do it ever again. I've heard it and I'm good.
2: There is that one video of her at like a train station.
0: Yeah, she's somewhere and just starts going and it's like, no, stop, stop it. Nobody wants to hear that.
2: (laughs) The best part is if you mute the video and just read the comments, they are so funny. Like just the comment section of that is hilarious. So for years, New York accountant Alan Klein had been looking for an entree with the Beatles. Like he was looking for a way in. A tenacious man, Klein was known for uncovering lost royalties for music artists and he had managed singer, huh, huh, Sam Cooke before his death.
0: Hey.
2: Hey. Most recently, he had been the business manager for such English acts as Hermits, Hermits, Donovan, and the Rolling Stones. However, Klein also had a, a reputation for questionable ethics and was under investigation by U.S. financial authorities. Even so, more than anything, he wanted the Beatles. He had once offered to help Brian Epstein make the band bigger fortunes but Epstein had declined and he even refused to shake Klein's hand. So Epstein, I think Epstein kind of thought Klein was sort of vile. After reading Lennon's comments about the Beatles running the risk of going broke, Klein managed to coerce Peter Brown, a director of Apple, into arranging a formal introduction to Lennon on January 28, 1969, 2 days before the Beatles Apple's rooftop performance. Klein met Lennon and Ono at a London hotel and charmed both of them. He knew the Beatles' music inside out and knew how to get on Lennon's good side, lauding Lennon's particular contributions to various songs. And so, of course, in true LD fashion, I had a word in here that I had no idea what the meaning was. So we looked it up, and I still have no idea what it means. So uh, basically, as TJ told me, Klein kind of sucked up to... Lennon and Ono's validity as an artist in her own right. Just as important, Klein convinced Lennon that they shared a similar sensibility. By the evening's end, John and Yoko were won over. Lennon and Klein signed a letter of agreement, and Lennon informed Ian and I and the Beatles the next day I don't give a bugger who anybody else wants, Lennon said, but I'm having Alan Klein for me. This set off the conflagration that killed the Beatles. McCartney still tried to advance Lee and John Eastman to represent the group's interest and arranged a meeting for all of the central players. But Alan Klein turned the encounter into a trap, baiting Lee Eastman accusing him essentially of being a secretive Jew. Not my words. Eastman had abandoned the family surname Epstein years before, which is interesting because Brian was also Epstein. And Lennon joined in. Finally, Eastman exploded in a fury, calling Klein a rodent. I wouldn't let Eastman near me, Lennon told Rolling Stone in 1970. I wouldn't let a effing animal like that near me who has a mind like that. The worse Klein behaved and the more that Eastman tried to tear down his character, the more Lennon and Ono championed him as the Beatles' rescuer, and Harrison and Starr would soon agree. Because we were all from Liverpool, Harrison said in the mid-1990s, we favored people who were street people. Lee Eastman was more of a class-conscious type of person, and as John was going with Klein, it made it much easier if we went with him too. Though Mick Jagger, who no longer trusted Klein at all, tried to dissuade the Beatles, don't go near him, he wrote in a note to McCartney, It was no use. This disagreement came at the worst possible time for the Beatles, when everything was happening too fast. In a matter of months, the Beatles lost their chance to commandeer Brian Epstein's former management firm, NEMS, costing them a fortune, and more crucially... Lennon and McCartney lost the rights to Northern Songs, their music publisher. In the course of it all, McCartney married Linda Eastman on March 12, 1969, and Lennon and Ono married in on uh, March 20th. In addition, on the same day as McCartney's wedding, Harrison and his wife, Patty, were arrested for marijuana possession. Lennon and Ono had been arrested on a similar charge by the same police officer months before, and the disposition of that case affected Lennon's life for years. Klein had also been no benefit to any of the business debacles, despite his assurance. And yet, Lennon, Harrison, and Starr remained supportive of him. That sounds like a busy day. Yeah. I'm sure we'll get into it when we do an episode on George Harrison. But I think Patty Harrison ended up marrying, if I'm remembering right, ended up marrying Eric Clapton. And that's what the song Layla is about. This was essentially a battle between Lennon and McCartney. These men were fated to prevail, and neither of them could afford to lose. McCartney eventually succumbed, and though with a fine subterfuge, the Beatles signed their contract with Klein. McCartney refused to put his signature on the document. Neither Klein nor the others believed that this mattered. The Beatles had a majority rule understanding. But in that moment of dissonance, Paul McCartney pulled off the only brilliant maneuver that anybody accomplished during the Beatles' whole sorry in-game. By withholding his signature, McCartney would later convince the court he was no longer contractually bound to remain with the Beatles and had never been bound to Klein. So it was a smart move on his part. By this time, McCartney had lost his heart for apples. The company had resulted largely from his vision. In fact, he now hated the place and he stopped visiting the offices when McCartney would try to reach Klein the Beatles nominal manager would sometimes refuse the call and tell him to call back on Monday Klein told his receptionist "I mean, this guy just seems gross
0: well yeah he wanted he saw the dollar signs wanted in and then uh didn't care
2: yeah but I mean it's when you're in a relationship and it's a long-term relationship and you've known this person for years and it's just like little things bug you and it just needles into you and then eventually something happens and it just splinters the whole relationship like you guys have knocked down drag out fights like you know what I'm talking about yeah I feel like this is what's happened with the Beatles is that they've been together for over a decade now and just like you have four big personalities, four super creative people, and all of a sudden, something steps in and just shatters the whole thing. I feel like that's what happened with the Beatles because you have them fighting for royalty rights. You have, you know, who wrote this song, who wrote what part, who gets what thing. And they had, it seems like they never really made that agreement, at least in my readings. It didn't. Each individual person is given the rights to that song. Yeah. So even though there was this like splinter happening between the groups, they actually got together long enough to do the get back sessions and they reconvened to make another album. At this point, I think they felt like the end was nigh because they wanted to make a final record worthy of their reputation. But the truth is, no matter their troubles, the Beatles still liked the music that they made together, even if they didn't like one another. They had already been recording intermittently since the January sessions and had produced The Ballad of John and Yoko with just Lennon and McCartney, so they could be in a room together, and Harrison's old brown shoe with a full band. McCartney persuaded George Martin to return to the production helm and brought back Jeff Emmerich under the assurance that the Beatles would work on their best behavior. Lennon had to delay his arrival at the Sessions after wrecking his car that he and uh, Yoko and Julian and Kyoko were riding in. On July 1st, 1969, when Lennon arrived at Abbey Road, he had a bed installed on the studio floor so his wife could rest and offer commentary. How ridiculous is that? Pretty ridiculous. (laughs) So, I'm not sure if they were scared of her or not, but none of the other Beatles dared protest. The three of them were just a little bit scared of him, recalled EMI engineer Phil McDonald. John was a powerful figure, especially with Yoko, a double strength. There were still disagreements, including Lennon barging into McCartney's house one day when Paul had missed a session and shouting in rage, breaking a painting that he had given McCartney. At another point, John wanted his and Paul's songs relegated to the separate sides of the vinyl albums. In the end, a compromise was reached. Most of the standalone songs on one side and the suite known as The Huge on the Other. Just as important, Harrison finally enjoyed some long-overdue prominence with his contributions, Something, and Here Comes the Sun. Uh, they were recognized as some of the best work that the Beatles had done during the summer of 1969. The resulting album, Abbey Road, provided a sweeping display of the band's mature strengths and perspective on its history. Whether the Beatles intended it that way or not, Lennon would later renounce Abbey Road as something slick that McCarthy fashioned to preserve the myth. But Lennon had a habit of not appreciating anybody's depth but his own. McCartney had been watching the Beatles come apart, and he was grieving over it, talking about the closing segments of Abbey Road's Suite with Barry Miles. In Paul McCartney, many years from now, McCartney said, I am generally quite upbeat, not at certain times. Things get to me... So much that I just can't be upbeat anymore, and that was one of those times. Carrying that weight for a long time, like forever, that's what I meant. In 1969, Lennon and Ono married in a ceremony at the Rock of Gibraltar, an event that was famously chronicled in the song The Ballad of John and Yoko. Finally making it to the plain, to Paris, they honeymooned down by the Seine. Peter Brown called to say, "'You can make it okay. You can get married at Gibraltar near Spain.'" That while their wedding was relatively an isolated affair, they welcomed the world to their honeymoon. Lennon and Ono set up camp in a bed at the Amsterdam Hotel to promote world peace, lying in bed, fully clothed for a week. I I don't <laughs> I wasn't present for when this actually happened, but I remember like the sleep-in that they did was like a big thing. They repeated the stunt two weeks later in Montreal, and it was at the Montreal bed-in that they recorded Give Peace a Chance, surrounded by members of the press friends, and followers. By this time, Lennon had fully dedicated his life with Ono, and each of the Beatles had started to move in their own directions. Ono's presence at the recording studio and her input on the music irked the other Beatles, and they had also begun to explore different artistic worlds. The disintegration of the world's most famous band had begun. Lennon was the first to tell the others that he was leaving the group, and did so in September of 1969. Oh, ten years later, I'd be born. But it was Paul McCartney who broke the news to the world publicly that he was leaving, and that the Beatles officially split on April 10th, 1970. By the time Abbey Road was released on September 26th, almost my birthday, the Beatles' fellowship had effectively ended. On September 13th, John Lennon and Yoko Ono performed at the Toronto Rock and Roll Revival with a makeshift group that included Eric Clapton and the Experience convinced Lennon that he no longer had to withstand the confines of his old band. A week later, during a meeting with Apple, with Klein, the Beatles, and Ono in attendance, McCartney tried once more to persuade his bandmates to undertake a tour and return to the stage. Let's get back to square one and remember what we're all about, he told them. Lennon responded, I think you're daft. I wasn't going to tell you, but I'm breaking the group up. Feels good. It feels like a divorce. The people in the room didn't know whether to be shocked or to take the claim as another show of bravado on John Lennon's part. Nobody, including Ono, knew this was happening on this day. Our jaws dropped, McCartney said. For once, McCartney and Klein were in agreement. They persuaded Lennon to hold off any announcement for at least a couple of months. Klein had just finished a new deal that won the Beatles' substantial increases in royalty rates, and he didn't want to spook EMI with the knowledge that the band was breaking up. Plus, Klein and McCartney believed that Lennon might reconsider. It was uncommon for him to swing between extremes, but Ono knew better. She was uh, as unhappy as anybody else in that moment. We went off in the car, she later told Phil Norman, and he turned to me and said, "'That's it with the Beatles. From now on, it's just you.'" Okay? I thought, my God, those three guys were the ones entertaining him for so long, and now I have to be the one to take the load. Lennon would, in fact, send mixed signals in the months that followed. In comments to Rolling Stone and New Musical Express in early 1970, Lennon said the Beatles might record again and might play at a summer peace festival in Canada. Harrison, too, had been talking about a possible new Beatles tour. It'll probably be a rebirth, you know, for all of us, Lennon said. But McCartney now felt shattered. The band, the life that he had been a part of since he was 15, had just been cut off from him. John's in love with Yoko, he told London's Evening Standard, and he is no longer in love with the other three of us. Paul stayed at home with Linda, her daughter Heather, and their infant Mary, and had begun drinking in the evenings and the mornings alike. He stopped writing music altogether. His temper flared easily. He had fallen into paralyzing depression until Linda could take no more. Here I am, married to a drunk who won't take a bath, she told a friend. According to Peter Carlin, Paul McCartney a life. You don't have to take this crap, she finally told Paul. You're a grown man. During Christmas week 1969, McCartney took his wife's advice and started to work on his first album, as an independent artist. He called Lennon in March 1970 and informed them that he, too, was now leaving the Beatles. Good. That makes two of us who have accepted it mentally. Any lingering chance of reconciliation was cut short by a series of blunders that Lennon, Klein, and Harrison committed in the early months of 1970. By then, the January 1969 rehearsal and recording sessions had all been edited, and Klein wanted an album to accompany the film, which would now be called Let It Be, after a song by McCartney. Although Abbey Road was recorded later than Let It Be, that one had already been released in September of 1969. Glenn Johns had tried to assemble an album in 1969. Paul indicated that he was okay with it, but John hated what he heard. Ironically, the results were too close to the rough and raw recording aesthetics that Lennon had originally insisted on, and by early 1970, Klein wanted something more commercially appealing. In March... Lennon turned over the January 1969 tapes, which he described as the shittiest load of badly recorded shit with the lousiest feeling to it ever. Forgive me for that language. To the legendary Wall of Sound producer Phil Spector, who had produced Lennon's Instant Karma single in January of 1970. Neither Klein nor Spector wanted George Martin involved. I didn't consider him in my league, Spector said. He was an arranger. That's all. The changes that Spector brought to let it be were at best for the worst stifling both Mark mccartney's title song and his heartfelt battled the long and winding road with over layers of orchestration specter modified the layers of the long and winding road seemed so preserved at one point that Starr, who attended the overdubbing sessions dragged the producer from the studio by the arm and reprimanded him during that time specter never consulted mccartney about the changes that he was making which may have been klein and lennon's intentions After finally hearing Spectre's new mixes, McCartney requested changes, but Klein told him it was too late. In late 2003, McCartney and Starr would issue a new version of Let It Be called Let It Be Naked, free of Spectre's arrangements, and jokes aside, that Lennon had actually pushed for. The final affront came when Klein, Harrison, and Lennon determined that McCartney couldn't release his debut solo album on April 17th, as originally planned, but had to push back the date to June the 4th to allow room for Let It Be, which was now set for April 24th. When Lennon and Harrison sent Starr as an emissary to McCartney's home to deliver the letter to that effect, McCartney reacted with uncharacteristic vehemence. Just as the argument might have turned physical, he tossed Ringo from his house. When Starr returned, he felt bad for what he was doing to Paul and asked that he let McCartney keep his album's original release date. Harrison and Lennon consented pushing let it be back to may but they resented mccartney the feeling had turned mutual they were all talking about peace and love mccartney told the newspaper at the time but we weren't feeling peaceful at all none of them though nothing anticipated what mccartney ended up doing i just couldn't let john control the situation he later said in in april when paul released his first solo work mccartney also issued a self-interview and in which he made some very interesting statements, I should say. Question, do you miss the Beatles? Answer, no. Question, are you planning a new album or single with the Beatles? Answer, no. All right, then. Just done. And you got to think, when two people break up, it can be messy. Can you imagine four or six people just all breaking up at once? Like, Because that's what a band is. It's a marriage. It's a contract, literally. Yeah, yeah. And then one person's doing something that you hate, and the other person's doing something stupid, and this other person's putting out press release. Like, that's got to be a nightmare. Long before John told the world the dream is over, Paul had already delivered the news. Lennon took his partner's statement as an unacceptable usurpation. I wanted to do it, and I should have done it. Lennon said, man, the cojones on this guy. (laughs) I was a. F- well, he thinks he's in charge. Yeah, but that's the thing is like nobody was in charge.
0: No, it's a band. I mean, they should all have equal input and say. And they should have, co- I mean, yes, they should have come together to determine who would announce it or, you know, all of them announce it simultaneously rather than one person deciding, you know what, nope, I'm doing it.
2: So what you're saying without is. Without letting anybody know. <laughs> so what you're saying is they should have come together. Right now? No. Over me? No. <laughs> no. <laughs> so one of the biggest issues that John had with Lennon making the statement was that he thought that Paul was using it to sell records. Mm. So kind of like with today's climate is like create controversy to bring attention to something. And so saying like the biggest band in the world is breaking up. But, Paul's got an album coming out. It's kind of d- sort right. of the, the same kind of thing that we deal with today, right He's Like, but his resentment was actually deeper than that. The Beatles had originally been John Lennon's band. Like remember, he they were the quarrymen, and they evolved into the Beatles. And that was John Lennon's band. And in his heart, its fate depended on him. I started the band. I disbanded. It was simple as that. He said, Lennon, it seemed, was upset that it was McCartney who was being seen as the one leaving and not the other way around. I think it was just straightforward jealousy, Paul told Barry Miles. At this time, McCartney told newspaper, Ringo left first, then George, then John. I was the last to leave. It wasn't me. So there are a lot of different, like, stories about who left when. The end of the Beatles, however, had only entered into a new and strange phase that would go on for years. Don't worry, I don't cover that in detail. <laughs> <laughs> McCartney wanted out of Apple altogether. He didn't want Alan Klein to have anything to say about his music or to share in his profits. But when he called Harrison seeking consent to be released from his arrangement, George said, You stay on the effing label. Hare Krishna. McCartney wrote Lennon long letters begging to leave the Beatles organization, but Lennon fired back with only one or two-line noncommittal replies. McCartney threatened to sue, and Klein laughed at him. On December 31, 1970, McCartney sued to dissolve the Beatles. Klein later admitted that he was completely caught off guard. The other three Beatles were unified in their response to the court. There was no need to end the group. Things weren't that bad. They could still make music together. The only problem was... Paul and his domineering ways. The judge decided that McCartney's request for disillusion was proper and consigned the Beatles considerable earnings to receivership upon varying details of the separation. The divorce that Lennon wanted could be worked out. So basically, the court agreed, like, We'll break you guys up, and we will figure out what money goes to who. So there was a case there. In 1973, the remaining Beatles' contracts with Klein ended, and they did not renew it. They had grown tired of him. Good. Soon, Harrison, Lennon, and Starr would sue their former manager... Lennon admitted to an interviewer that McCartney perhaps had been right all along about Klein, and in a separate Apple-related matter, Klein would be sentenced to two months in a U.S. prison for fraud. When the Klein debacle was over, Harrison said that he wouldn't mind reforming the Beatles. When the time came for the Beatles together to sign the final dissolution of the old partnership, Lennon refused to appear. He was worried that the other Beatles would end up with more money than he would, and somebody close to him at the time said that he panicked. Because this meant that the Beatles were truly over with. Maybe he never really meant to disband the group after all. Certainly, though, it had been his rage that had destroyed the band. In the same meeting where he was saying that he was leaving the Beatles, Lennon also vented years' worth of self doubt and discontent and placed it all at McCartney's feet. Paul, he felt, always had eclipsed him, taking more time to realize the sound that he wanted in the studio, winning more approval from George Martin. Plus, Paul had simply written too damn much. By John's estimation, by the time they got to the Magical Mystery Tour sessions, Lennon said, you already have five or six songs or so. I I can't keep up with that. So I didn't bother, you know, and I thought I don't really care whether or not I was on it or not. I convinced myself that it didn't matter. And so for a period of time, you didn't invite me to be on an album personally. If you three didn't say write some more songs because we like your work, I wasn't going to fight. But Lennon added, there's no point in turning them out because I didn't have the energy to turn them out and get them on an album as well. I think that happened a lot because I mean, think about how much Freddie wrote for Queen. Right. And it was, they they all wrote for Queen. All four of them contributed to albums. And in fact, if you watch Bohemian Rhapsody, there's a great part where they're like fighting to get on an album. And I don't think John had it in him to fight Paul to get his songs on the album because Paul was like, this massive songwriter, and when it came down to it, John just didn't have the energy to fight to get his stuff on the album. Right. It was a remarkable confession. John Lennon, who until Abbey wrote and let it be, had written most of the Beatles' masterpieces and defined their greatest depths, could no longer bear to divide up his brilliance with Paul McCartney. The Beatles could withstand whatever tensions Yoko brought them. They might have endured Alan Klein, but the Beatles could not survive John Lennon. His anxiety was simply too vast. So the Beatles ended never together again in their lifetime. Lennon, Harrison, and Starr played together in various configurations over the years, though only rarely did they record with McCartney. Once when Eric Clapton married Harrison's former wife, which is what I was talking to you about earlier, Patty Boyd, Paul, George, and Ringo played live for a few impromptu minutes. Also, once John and Paul played music together at somebody's Los Angeles studio in 1974, and Paul took a significant role in reuniting John and Yoko when they were separated during that same time period. Lennon and McCartney, the most important songwriting team in history, repaired their friendship somewhat over the years, though they stayed distant, would never write together again. And so that is the first part of John Lennon. They're nice. I know it's a lot. It's a lot of business, and I know I didn't really focus on any particular songs, you know. But the Beatles put out so much music, so many albums, so m- and it's all amazing. I mean, I I could legit name fifty Beatles songs right now. Me. <laughs> if you guys can't tell, TJ gives n- no flying fritters. ...about the Beatles. True story. <laughs> Which is why I will be doing Harrison as well. Yep. <laughs> but uh, but yeah, I mean, it's really interesting to see kind of the rise and the fall and what they had to deal with as a group and work together on these dynamics. And you're dealing with four insanely talented... Okay, you're dealing with three insanely talented people and then Ringo Starr and... Oh, that's mean. <laughs> Well, you've heard the quote from John Lennon that said, do you guys think that Ringo Starr is the best drummer in the world? And John Lennon famously said, he's not even the most famous drummer in the Beatles. Well, there you go. But yeah, I mean, they they were a dynamic group. They pumped out so much stuff. And it really shook the world when they broke up. So even though you're not a fan, you have to appreciate what I they do. brought. I do.
0: I do. I appreciate what they brought to the table. I appreciate, you know... That people really like them and were upset when they broke up. But uh, I was not one of those people.
2: Now, I will say, and I know for a fact that you probably haven't seen this movie yet. There is a great movie that just came out called Yesterday. And the whole premise of the movie is that this guy gets into a biking accident at the moment of a worldwide electrical event. And when everything reboots... The Beatles don't exist.
0: Yeah, and and he gets famous using Beatles songs, like covering Beatles songs. Yeah, but it's... Yeah,
2: I've seen the previews for it. uh, I watched it from the second time last Sunday. It's just so good. It is so... It's so much fun. It's a Richard Curtis movie, and he did uh, About Time and Love Actually, so of course I love it, (laughs) but... You know, if you are a Beatles fan, check that movie out. It's totally worth it. It's like this cute little, just, you. It looks like a cute movie. It's great.
0: I was interested in it, except for the fact that I would have to sit through a lot of Beatles songs, and I don't want to do that, so.
2: It's, it's very interesting that you say that, because it's a new twist on the idea of the Beatles songs. What do you mean? Um, so it's him, it's not the Beatles doing the music. It's him doing the Beatles music. Right. So he puts his own artistic flair on it. And there's a great point in it where there, he's recording Hey Jude and Ed Sheeran comes in and is like why don't you change it to Hey Dude because then you open it up to a bigger audience and it's just hilarious. Oh my god. Um <laughs>
0: Yeah but that's the thing is that it's not even that I don't care for the sound of the Beatles because I, I mean, I don't, but also I just really don't like some of the music and I know people are going to be upset with me, whatever. It's my tastes and leave me alone. Uh, but I don't know.
2: I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna sit here and act like I'm the biggest Beatle fan in the world and I can totally get where you come from. Like there are just some things that hit you. As a person, through music and things that move you, you know. But I would say universally, the Beatles are loved. Well, and yes, I'm not I, saying I'm not saying you're wrong. I'm I'm just saying like collectively, people do love the Beatles.
0: Yeah, I know, and I generally don't voice my opinion about them because I know that uh, it is not popular. However, yeah, whatever. <laughs> like it. It's to a point where there are certain songs that I hear and they make me angry. Like it is a visceral reaction within my body and it makes me angry. And I can't help it. It's just how I feel when I hear that, those songs.
2: Fair enough. I mean, when I die, there is a song by the Beatles that I want played at my funeral, which is In My Life, which I think is a gorgeous song. Another one of my favorite songs by them is I've just seen a face. Like, love that.
0: <laughs> I don't even know that song. Oh, it's great. It's, I'm I'm good.
2: And there's another movie called Across the Universe, if you want to explore that one, that's really cool. That stars Evan Rachel Wood, and she is brilliant, and they kind of it doesn't have anything to do with the Beatles. They just make it into a jukebox musical. But that one is brilliant. I love that film. I think it came out too early. I think if it came out now, it would be hailed as like a, a massive classic. But I think if you haven't seen Across the Universe, it is really good. Pass. Well, fair enough. But uh, but yeah, so that's our episode on John Lennon. I know this was uh, kind of long-winded and there was a lot of technical stuff. So thanks for hanging in with us. I will continue to listen to Come Together by
0: either Aerosmith or Gary Clark Jr. Fair enough. Does that work? That
2: That's a good compromise. Okay. We can compromise on that. Okay. So, like I said, thank you guys for checking us out. We'll be back next week with part two of John Lennon. Um, if you love us and want to give us money, we'll take it. You can do that at patreon.com backslash rock and roll heaven. You can find us on all our socials. Uh, Twitter is at rock and roll Lt. Our Facebook is Rock and Roll Heaven Pod, Instagram, Rock and Roll Heaven LT, still not saying our website. And you can email us at rockandrollheavenlt at gmail.com. If I said those too fast, you can check those out in the show notes. And again, have a great week, guys. We'll catch you next week. Well, TJ, usually I end this on a question, but I don't really have a question. I don't really
0: have an answer.
2: Okay, good. All right. All right.
0: right. Yeah. All right. Bye. Bye.